I would like each of you to think for a moment and consider this question. Apart from the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, what single event has had the greatest impact on human history? So let me repeat that again. Other than the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, what single event has had the greatest impact on human history? I'm actually going to ask some of you who are brave enough to, to tell me your answers in a moment, but I just want to tell you what happened in the early service. When I asked that question and I asked for feedback, the very first person to answer was... Um, Matthew Davis, who I think is three, he might be four, and he shouted out Christmas. And I thought that was a great answer. Um, I had already said that, you know, other than the birth of Christ. But, you know, he's three or four, and I gave him, I was like, I'm just glad you're tracking and responding, you know. But then an adult said, the resurrection of Jesus. And I said, that's true, but let's go back to the actual question that I asked and the way I worded it. Um, so I just said that just to prepare us a little bit more. Now, if any of you are bold enough to suggest an idea, what event has had the greatest impact on human history? Rick? The coming of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I'm going to have a hard time arguing with that, even though that's not where I'm going here. But I would, that's absolutely. Carrie? The invention of the wheel. The invention of the wheel. Okay. I think almost all of us got here today in one way or another, thanks to the wheel. So I will agree, that had a big impact on, on human history. Thank you, okay, yes, the Christopher, of course, thank you. I appreciate that. Steal my thunder, but nonetheless, that's encouraging to me because that shows that we're tracking with where we are in the book of Acts. If you were following along in context, you would know that we have arrived at the conversion of Saul. And I would affirm that, that other than I'm going to add something here. Other than the birth, life, death, resurrection of Christ, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, the other single event that, is, that has more impacted the world than anything else is the conversion of Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. Because after his conversion, Saul will become the greatest missionary humanity has ever known. He'll be responsible for taking the gospel to the ends of the known earth and even right into the heart of Rome itself, the capital and center of the most powerful empire of the day. Saul, later Paul, will become the primary author of the New Testament. As far as volume goes, he'll compose 13 books and letters that have been preserved and passed on to us as part of Holy Scripture. Saul has influenced more people than any other human being has. And because of his role, his writings, and his life, he is in many ways our earthly spiritual father. The gospel has come to us because the vast majority of us are of Gentile descent. And Paul was specifically commissioned by Jesus to be his specific apostle to the Gentiles. That's to us that's to our forebears. That's to our ancestors. So we could say that the gospel has come to us and been made accessible to us in part through the calling and obedience of Saul. Now I've been using the word conversion to describe Saul's transformation from the primary persecutor of the church to its primary defender 
and propagator. And this word conversion, it's an important one. It comes from the Latin convertere, and it means to change into a different form or properties, to transform. Literally, though, it means to turn. And for those of us who live in Brazil and pay attention when we're in vehicles, in Sao Paulo especially, you are confronted with this word in Portuguese all the time. Usually it's for turning to the right, where there's a bus lane. Só para conversão à direita, right? I'm just glad that there's such an emphasis on conversion in our city, you know? Even the government puts it on plaques everywhere, signs, you know? Conversion to the right, conversion to the right. In the case of Saul, this is the appropriate word to use to describe what happened when he was brought to Jesus. He was transformed. And he turned from one path to another. He turned away from the world and he turned toward Jesus Christ. And this event is so crucial, so important to the history of Christianity that just in the book of Acts alone, it's repeated three different times. It's described, Paul's conversion is described three times in the book of Acts. Today, I'd like to read the first one of those descriptions. Luke writing in chapter nine of Acts, describing Paul's, or Saul, I'm, I, I really struggle to keep those two names separate. We're still in Saul. He hasn't become the Apostle Paul yet, so Saul. As Luke describes Saul's conversion, his complete and total transformation. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priests and asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. 
But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I would like us this morning to note five aspects of a true conversion that we see in this account. Now, having said that, let me also say that I, with this, I'm not suggesting that every conversion will be exactly like Saul's conversion or that every conversion has to be as dramatic or that everyone has to see a vision of Jesus or audibly hear the voice of Christ at their conversion. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I am suggesting is there are underlying principles that Saul's conversion is based upon. And those are universal. The principles are universally applicable to each individual who is called to Christ. Now, as we talk through this, I want to consciously address two groups of people. The first group are, are those of you here or perhaps watching online who already would refer to yourselves as daughters or sons of God. And what I mean by that is you have already believed in Jesus, you have already repented of your sin, and you've accepted the death of Jesus on the cross in your place as payment for your sin. So if you're already a believer in Jesus, today I want you to be reminded of the grace and blessing of your conversion. And I want you to be renewed in your commitment to Christ and his calling. Now the second group are those of you that do not yet claim Christ as your savior. If you don't know Jesus yet, today I want you to be challenged by Saul's conversion so that you too will turn to Christ that you will be converted, that you will be transformed into a new creation. The first aspect of a true conversion is that it is initiated by God. Let me say that again. A true conversion is initiated by God. It's interesting to see how much Saul and Stephen had in common. I didn't misspeak. It's interesting to see how much Saul and Stephen had in, con in common. Remember Stephen, the first martyr of the church, one of the seven chosen as deacons? He was executed, and that's the first time we meet Saul. Saul is there giving approval to Stephen's death. The text says that those who were stoning Stephen laid their cloaks at Saul's feet. Now, why was Stephen, why was Stephen executed? Primarily and fundamentally because he was arguing and he was teaching that Christianity 
was incompatible with Jewish temple worship, that Christianity was not tied to the temple. That was his argument. That's why he was executed. Here it is, folks. On that point, Saul and Stephen are in total agreement. Saul, like Stephen, agreed that Christianity was incompatible with the practice, the ongoing practice of Judaism as it was practiced in their day. They just saw different answers to that incompatibility. Saul saw that the old and the new could not coexist, so he sought to annihilate the new. Stephen saw the same thing, but he sought to leave behind the old and hold on to the new. And Saul is so convinced that he's right, that he's become a one-man inquisition. And just as a side note, we need to remember that Saul was doing what he was doing sincerely. He honestly thought that he was carrying out the will of God. His motivation was zeal for the faith of his fathers and for the temple in Jerusalem. That's also a reminder to us that sincerity is not a measure of truth. It's, it's a measure of sentiment. It's a measure of thought. It's not a measure of truth, meaning that we can be sincere and still be wrong. This was the case of Saul. And what, I, I give you this background because even now Saul is traveling to foreign cities to find Christians and put them in jail. He, he's done with Jerusalem. It's like, man, this town's too small for me. I got to go farther. He gets letters of introduction from the chief priests to the leaders of synagogue in Damascus. And he travels there. He's on his way there to round up more Christians, to persecute them, to put them in jail. So what I want you to note from this is that there's no hint in the text that Saul is a seeker. We are not given any insight that would let us know that Saul's struggling with these things in his heart or that there's a tension within him. No, he is fully decided and clear. Anti-Christ, anti-church, anti-the way. And as we saw with the Ethiopian last week, Saul's the very last person that anyone would ever expect to become a follower of Jesus. And that fact emphasizes this truth. Conversion begins with God. He initiates it, not us. Out of the utter blue, Jesus steps into Saul's life and sets in motion his transformation. Now, there is a theological term that describes in the negative the fact that conversion is only at the initiative of Jesus. And it's the term total depravity. Some of you are familiar with this term. It means that mankind is so utterly depraved, so completely broken and sinful, that there is no way a person can come to Jesus by their own will apart from the grace of God. The grace of God will always take the first step. That without God's grace acting upon a person, they would never and could never choose God of their own volition. Saul, later when he becomes the Apostle Paul, writes in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he describes this state of total depravity as being dead. 
You therefore, he writes to the Ephesian church, you therefore were dead in your transgressions and sins. What does a dead person do? Nothing. A dead person has no will, has no ability to choose the good or the right. And that was the situation of every human being. Apart from God's grace, none of us would choose God. And, and this is Saul's circumstance. He's not going to choose God, but his conversion is therefore initiated by God. And God blazes into his reality in the person of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. So for those of you who are already children of God, who are believers in Jesus, here's a reminder to all of us to be profoundly grateful for God's grace and the initiative of Christ in your conversion. He didn't have to do that. Don't take it for granted, but let's be grateful and celebrate his initiative and his grace. The second aspect of a true conversion is this. A true conversion realizes who Jesus is and who I am. Saul is confronted personally and undeniably by Jesus himself. I can't imagine the nature of this light. It must have been blindingly powerful, so overwhelming that Saul knew it was divine because remember he's in the Middle East and it's daytime. So the sun already would have been bright. This brightness has to be so intense, so beyond what we can imagine as the sun that Saul is convinced of its divinity. And Saul addresses the light. Uh, we don't know exactly what Saul saw. If he saw only light or if he saw a form of some kind, we don't know. But nonetheless, he addresses the light as Lord. So he, he recognizes that this light is far beyond him, that it's divine of source, but he doesn't yet know who it is. That's why he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice answers out of the brightness, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I think that was the moment the scales fall from Saul's spiritual eyes, even as his physical eyes are blinded. And he realizes that this Jesus, whose memory he's been trying to stamp out, is the Lord himself, the Son of God, the crucified, the buried, the risen one, the Savior and the Redeemer of humanity. And in that moment, as Saul, as Jesus is revealed to Saul, and Saul has a realization of who Jesus is, then he also realizes who he himself is. And I think that's inevitable for any person who has an encounter, a genuine encounter with Christ. We see who Christ is, we recognize who he is, and immediately we realize who and what we are. Saul realized he's, he's been persecuting the church of Jesus. That even though he was sincere, he's been in rebellion against the Lord of all history, the Son of God, the Redeemer, the Messiah. And that he himself is a broken sinner. And I'm so grateful for the way Jesus identifies himself to Saul. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, Saul wasn't 
attacking Jesus, right? I mean, at least not his physical body. He was attacking people. He was persecuting the church. But when Jesus makes this statement, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, he's making a profound statement of his oneness with his church also. That Paul is, Saul rather, is punching the church and Jesus is receiving the blows. Paul's attacking the church and Jesus is receiving the pain. And that should be a comfort to us in our suffering. That Jesus identifies himself with us in our suffering and that he does not stand far off in distance but that the suffering of his church he receives as suffering in himself. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, Saul. There's a story that I've told here twice before and I'm going to tell it once more because I think it illustrates this idea so clearly of a revelation of Christ revealing to us who we are. So if you've heard it before, forgive me and just hang in there. Early on in Pastor Bill's tenure as pastor here at Calvary, um, I must have been around 12, maybe 13 years of age, and at the time... Calvary had an annual family retreat. So it was usually over Carnival weekend and many people from the church would go to a camp, families, singles, lots of different people and spend the weekend together at camp as a retreat. And at the time, and I don't say this with pride, I say this rather cringing, um, I kind kind of liked my position as pastor's son. Now I know some people don't, um, like being associated with their, you know, parents who are leaders in the church or whatever. And um, I don't know, Ethan, Micah, you probably, you're cringing right now, I know. So uh, that's all right. But um, I, I kind of liked it, you know, and I, I think I was a little arrogant about it. So we're at this camp, and I know that on this last night, there's going to be a bonfire. The bonfire is going to happen somewhere out in the woods where there's a clearing. It's already dusk, actually night has fallen, and uh, I decide that I kind of want to go see where the bonfire is going to be. So I start on this path, but it's very, very dark. I don't have a flashlight, so I'm moving really slowly, kind of a little bit nervous. And then ahead of me, I see a flashlight that's moving around in this clearing. Now, I think to myself, Who else else is going to be wandering around out here in the dark but another kid? And if it's another kid, well, (laughs) I'm the prince. So I clearly outrank any other kids that would be out here. And so as I approached a little closer to the the clearing, this is what's really cringy to me. I say, I know, I I can hear myself saying it. Hey! Whoever you are, shine the light at my feet so I can see where I'm going. And of course, they obeyed. Of course they would. They know, they, they know the hierarchy here, right? So the light comes down, it shines at my feet, and I walk along the path. It illuminates my way into the clearing. And I get into the clearing, and I'm, I'm looking around. I see the pile of wood there. It's, it's all ready for the bonfire later. But as I draw near, the light 
reveals the person who's holding the light. And it was not a kid. It was one of the elders of the church. It was one of the deacons. I still remember his name, Ray Thielbar. Some of you might remember the Thielbars. And at the moment that I saw him and realized who he was, I also saw me and who I was and how I had spoken with so much arrogance and disrespect and in such a demanding way. And Mr. Thielbar, he didn't say a word. He just kept getting the, the, the place ready for the, the, the fire later on. And I felt this big. I didn't, I didn't hang out there very long. I left. When we catch a glimpse of Jesus, we cannot but also realize our desperate need of him because of our brokenness and our sin and our perversion. A true conversion realizes who Jesus is and consequently who we are. This brings us to our third aspect of a true conversion. It is a surrender to the lordship of Christ. A surrender to the lordship of Christ. From the first moment that Saul encounters Jesus, he understands that he's in the presence of divine and ultimate authority. We see this in his use of the word Lord to address Jesus, even though he's not certain who this is, he already understands it's someone far above, far transcendent to himself. And then following his experience on the road, Saul is led into Damascus, and there he remains physically blind for three days. And he spends these days of darkness in fasting and in prayer. And even then we see this attitude of surrender to Jesus. From the very beginning, Saul surrenders to the lordship of Christ. Theologian Roy Clements has said that at root, a conversion is not a decision or commitment, but a surrender to the supreme authority of Christ. Let me say that again, that a conversion is not at root a decision or commitment, but rather a surrender to the supreme authority of Christ. I believe we see this reflected in Saul. Because Saul does not sit there on the road to Damascus and decide, okay, let me weigh my options here. That's good, I've seen this bright light, I've heard the voice of Christ, but I also kind of like my role. I like the, the honor that I've been receiving. I like having power over people, and I, let, let me make a list of pros and cons to decide which choice I should make, which is the right decision. Saul is so overwhelmed by the truth of Jesus, by the light of Christ, by his call, his response is less a decision, more a surrender to who Jesus is. There are a number of ways that I, I really respect my, my two sons. But one of those is, is their self-discipline in working out. They work out uh, regularly, and I'm in awe of how disciplined they are to do that. And there have been times where I've tried to, you know, kind of do some of the, the workouts that they're doing. It's given them opportunities for laughter and pity. Um, and one of these, these, this long workout a list that goes for days and days and days, but has a number of different exercises. But 
when it talks about reps, like how many times you're supposed to repeat this exercise, there's one phrase that I hate. Every time I have to do it, I hate. And it's the phrase, to failure. Which means that you're not supposed to repeat it a certain number of times. You're supposed to repeat it as many times as you can until you literally can't do it anymore, until you have reached the point of failure. So the few times that I've done one of these exercises to failure, when you get to that point of failure, let's say it's like push-ups and you're, you're up there on your last push-up or maybe you're down here, you don't think, hmm, let me make a decision right now. Let me make a choice if I'm going to continue, if I'm going to stop. No, you have reached the point of failure. So it is a question then only of surrender. I give. A true conversion will be a total giving over of self to Jesus. Now, I would also suggest that it will be a process. Even for Saul, this is a process. There is that first moment of surrender. But then there's going to be a lifetime of walking in that surrender. And as we read Saul's letters, we're going to read about some of his struggles, some of his challenges, some of his difficulties. Saul himself is going to need to be discipled. And it's going to be a process of walking in that surrender. And each of us faces this. When we approach conversion, there is a transformation. We surrender. But then self is constantly trying to get back into the mix. So we grow in that surrender. We have this great desire, right, to, for self-determination. I want to determine my own future. I want to make my own choices. I want to do what I want to do. I want to go where I want to go. I want control. And so over and over, we are invited into the grace of surrender. And I realize that this is not a perfect analogy, but when you've completed those exercises to failure, there's a great blessing in surrender and a relief in it. And as much as we resist surrender, as much as we might say to Jesus, no, you can't touch this part of my life. No, I, I'm going to maintain still control over that aspect of who I am. When we finally come to that point of saying, okay, Jesus, I give in, there is a great blessing of relief that comes with that as well. For those of you who are not yet believers in Jesus, I do want to invite you into that surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Because no matter how much control you think you have over your life, you are not the ultimate authority. And you have a choice to live in the illusion of self-determination or to surrender to the one who is truly sovereign and truly in control and live, if you want to put it in the vernacular, be on his team instead of constantly fighting against an overwhelming force. Our fourth aspect of conversion is that a true conversion is a conversion into the community of Christ. Let me say that again. A true conversion is a conversion into the community of Christ. According to this text, what are the first two words that Saul hears after his time of fasting, prayer, and darkness? According to this text, what are the first two words that he hears? Brother Saul. 
brother Saul. And that term brother, I don't think it's just a term of affection. It is a description of a brand new relationship into which Saul has entered. He has been adopted as a son of the Most High God and therefore he is also brother to all others who believe in Jesus. And the first word that he hears from Ananias describes that relationship, brother Saul. As Saul has come to Jesus, he has also come to Jesus' body, the church. Christ is the head of the church. No one can come to him. No one can come to Jesus without being part of his body. There are many times that I think many of us would prefer that. We, we are all part of the body of Christ and actually Saul becomes the person who writes the most in scripture about this analogy that the church is like a body. And he goes to great lengths to remind us that, that if we're part of the body, that means that we are growing together into the head who is Jesus. It means we are part of one another, that we relate to one another. And in our individualistic Western thinking, though, we often conceive of it more as just me and Christ. But if, if that's our thinking and we're discounting the body, that would be like having a head in the middle and then every individual part of the body is growing directly out of the head. So there's a finger growing out of the head and then an arm growing out of the head and an elbow growing out of the head and a toe growing out of the head over here. Bizarre, weird, it doesn't work. It's not life-giving. If we come to Christ, we are part of his body. And that's irrevocable. There is no concept in scripture of a Christian apart from the body of Christ. And that has implications not only for the person who is entering the body, the new member of the family of God, but it has implications for the others who are already part of the body. When I was growing up, my parents opened their home to many, many different people. I don't know the exact numbers, but not too long ago, my parents counted it up and um, they had had over the course of their marriage and, and um, their life in, in the US and in Brazil over, I may be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure I'm right, over 30 different people living in their home. This is beyond family members. We're not talking about family members. 30 people beyond family members to qualify they had to have spent at least, at least three months living in my parents' home. So when I was growing up, there were times uh, we had 10 people living in my parents' home and only four of us were biological family. Uh, every time somebody new moved in, it wasn't just about them and their adjustment. It required an adjustment from all the rest of us. It might've been minor. It might've just meant now that we're a little closer together at the dinner table. Sometimes it required greater implications or greater sacrifices. Sometimes it meant that I would now sleep on the couch instead of having my own room. There were a lot of different implications, but as a new person is converted, as they turn 
to Jesus and they are welcomed into the body of Christ that requires something both of the one entering, it also requires something of those who are already part of the body to welcome, to embrace, and to disciple those new believers. And even Saul, even Saul, who will become the great Apostle Paul, needs the ministry of the body. He needs the obedience of Ananias through whom he receives his sight back and through whom he receives the Holy Spirit. He needs the community of believers to baptize him. And in the next section, he's going to need Barnabas to introduce him to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not part of the church. We are converted into the community of Christ. The final aspect of true conversion that I'm going to refer to today is that we are converted for a purpose. In Saul's case, Jesus explicitly states to Ananias the purpose for which he brought Saul to conversion. Saul was his chosen instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. That's an incredibly high and crucial calling. When an employer hires a new employee, they hire them to do a job. There's a purpose for the hiring. They don't hire them and say, hey, now you're my employee. Go home. I never want to see you again. Your, your salary will be deposited every month and you don't need to do anything. You don't need to talk to me. You don't need, there's, there's no responsibilities. You're hired. No, you're hired. Here are the responsibilities. In the same way, Christ converts his people and then he calls them to fulfill his purpose in their lives. And while I believe God has unique niches, unique callings for each one of his children, ways that, that we will fulfill his plan and his, his mission and his vision for us in, in ways that are completely different and unique from that of everyone else. At the same time, there are some purposes that are universal. One of the primary ones of those is to be in relationship with him that he redeems us, he converts us, we are adopted as daughters and sons of God. Why? To be in relationship with him, to know him and to be known by him. Another one is to glorify him. This is foundational to the Christian faith. It's a purpose for which God created us, for which he redeems us, that his people who are made for his glory would glorify him. In this context with Saul, though, and particularly in the book of Acts as a whole, there's another universal purpose. And I, I really hope that there's someone out there that can tell me what that purpose is. We're converted for this purpose to become what? Thank you, Joel. It's something about that seat, because the person in the early service was sitting right there as well. So... That's the holy seat, apparently. That's the seat of all knowledge and memory. Yes, we, we, we have been converted. God has redeemed us and he has made us all his witnesses. Um, we can be good witnesses, we can be bad witnesses, but we are his witnesses. And another way that, that God 
defines this for us through Paul is in 2 Corinthians 5 where he calls each believer Christ's ambassadors. That's an incredible description that we are in a true sense the representatives of Jesus on earth. Just as an ambassador in the capital of a country is the true representation of the authority of a foreign power so we are the true representatives and ambassadors of Jesus Christ on earth. And the ministry he has given us, according to that, that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, is the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling broken sinners to God. We have been converted for a purpose. And one of those primary purposes is to be the witnesses of God, witnesses for Christ on earth. As I bring this to a close, I want to address again those two groups of people that I mentioned earlier. First of all, if you are already a believer in Jesus, I want you to be reminded today of the gift God gave you in your conversion. And I I would like to see our joy and our commitment to Christ renewed today. For we were converted through his initiative. Christ has been revealed to us and therefore we have realized also who we are in our frailty and sin. Our conversion has called us to full surrender to the lordship of Jesus and we've been converted into his body, the church, so that we can fulfill his purpose for us to be witnesses of his on earth. Now, for those of you who are not yet believers, this morning I want to invite you into conversion. If Jesus is already calling you by his spirit, now that might sound really vague to you, but if you are sensing the draw of the power and truth of God calling you out of the darkness, today is the day that you can turn that conversion to turn from one path onto another. Today is that day. An invitation to surrender to the lordship of Jesus means giving up ownership of your life and self-governance of your future. To believe that Jesus truly is the son of God, that he lived a human life and died a human death, but was risen to a divine inheritance that you are an irreparably broken sinner. But yet, if you come to Jesus in repentance, trusting that his death has covered, has completely covered, has paid your debt of sin, and surrendering your life to him, he will be faithful to save you, and by his power, make you a daughter or a son of the Most High God.